Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. On this episode, we build with Ricky Shore. I have actually known Ricky's kids since college, where we competed as rivals and teammates in a multitude of intramural, regional, and national sporting events. Ricky is married to Sally, 41 years, and they have three children and seven grandchildren. They've lived in Hickory, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, and now their hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Ricky graduated from North Carolina State University and started his first career with Wachovia Bank. 25 years later, he left the bank as a senior executive and purchased Aladdin Travel and Meeting Planners. 14 years later, he sold Aladdin and is now happily retired from not just one, but two careers. During his working career and in retirement, Ricky has been a committed volunteer and helped numerous organizations with fundraising. He is active at St. Paul's Episcopal Church and has helped with three capital campaigns, served on the vestry both senior and junior warden. Today, Ricky is enjoying traveling, his children and grandchildren, golf, tennis, pickleball, biking, and not working. Sounds like a wonderful life. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss life with three kids, his journey from being with the bank for 25 years to pivoting to owning his own travel company. We get into what Rickyisms are and how they help build a strong culture. Ricky also shares how to incentivize people the right way and how to pick the right clients. So now sit back, relax, and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ricky Shore. Super excited to welcome Ricky Shore to the podcast today. Today we are going to build with Ricky. Ricky, welcome. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. I'm excited to have you. I have known uh, your family for since I was uh, in college and have a lot of stories around mainly around sports with your kids. And uh, so we'll uh, we'll probably touch on some of those things as we go out through here. But uh, I want some folks that don't know you to get to know you or perhaps maybe even your kids who are listening to get to know you a little bit more. If you could only listen to one musical artist or band for the rest of your life, who are you listening to? Probably the Beatles or Bruce Springsteen. It's hard to just say, but the boss, uh, the Beatles, I mean, probably the Beatles, I probably like their music as much as anything. Ultimate golf foursome. This is people who are dead or alive, people you know, people you haven't ever met. Who would be in your foursome and where would you play? Um. You know, it's hard when you first ask that question and say, well, Richard Hill and my son-in-law Garrett is about as good as I do. Um, but I shook hands with Arnold Palmer. The king's the king. He certainly would be there. God, it's really an interest. That's a, that's a good one. I mean, I suppose I ought to say Tiger Woods because he was such a, now is such an influence still on golf. 
You know, I guess everybody says probably Jesus Christ or something, but I don't really know that I, that would do much for my golf game. I, I don't, I don't know that the, <laughs> the one. Um, you know, just I, it's really funny because I'd say the family, honestly, uh, and then some really good friends. I have, I tend to have fewer, deeper relationships with friends, and not broad. And so I have some old buddies that. Uh, fortunately, I do get to play with um, from time to time. That just it's so warm. It's like a you know old worn out sweater that just feels good every time. And then you know where gosh, I've been really fortunate to play in Scotland. I hope to play again. I've been to Ireland. Um, we have been to Pebble Beach uh, on business when it was really good. Somebody was paying for me to go. I've been a couple of times where I had to pay and and have taken the family there and. Pebble Beach is a pretty special place. Um, so, I, you know, Pebble, somewhere in Scotland or Ireland would be have to be on the list. Uh, so Ricky's trying to break the rules here. He's got multiple foursomes. He's playing at a bunch of different courses. Well, and I think you'll find, Clay, I'm just not very good at uh, when we on our when we have our birthdays. Uh, I think Jessica Henderson, my daughter-in-law, started the what were your five best things this year, you know, that happened in your in your year and. I usually can't get it down less about 15 or so. Um, <laughs> and that, it, so it's hard for me to just pick one thing. Oh, I won't give you too hard a time. It was hard for me to, I, I was the, the mic was flipped and someone interviewed me on my own podcast and asked me that question. And so now I like to ask it of other golfer guests. Yeah. And, uh, I, I gave a similar, well, I could do this. I could do this. And then I think my final answer <laughs> which people gave me a hard time for, of course, was uh, I would do my granddad, my dad, and then I picked one of my three sons. <laughs> and so then that the, went over the well. person who was it, yeah, that went over great, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I feel you on having a, having a hard time there. Um, <clears throat> would you rather have more time or more money? That's a good one. I'm retired, and so you'd say, gosh, time's just not a problem, but my days are pretty full, and uh, it'd be nice to have a, you know, if we could get eight or nine days each week would probably be a little helpful. It's hard to say could you have more money. There's a certain amount of money that just, if you got enough, you got enough. I, I think Sally and I have enough. <laughs> we'll we'll know if I move in with my children, I, if, I will have been wrong about that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's just, there's only so much, I guess, that you can spend, and you we all kind of evolve to whatever that, that capability we have and that's your life and that's that's pretty good so i suppose you know the problem with time is i'm 66 and so um when you're uh 66 there isn't as much time as if you're 34 35 um so time's probably something that would be uh, nice to have more of you graduated from nc state university in raleigh north carolina yes sir and then you sent three kids to the University of North Carolina Tar Heels yeah. in Chapel Hill, yeah. North Carolina. So what was it like graduating as a Wolfpacker and writing checks to the Tar Heels? Well, interestingly, I'm not sure I ever wrote a check to Chapel Hill. Sally did. Um, we, we, uh, <laughs> we, uh, and I would say those, all those, um, those allegiances soften over the years. We had a great time in Chapel Hill for eight years because all three of them went there, as you know. When Richard and I were playing golf at the beach, and he was trying to decide where he, what he wanted to do, 
he wanted to go to Virginia and didn't get in. Uh, I think we made him apply maybe to state and somewhere else. And he went to Davidson and toured and he said, I feel like I've just, I'll, it'll be a continuation of high school. And he said, I think I, I want to go to Chapel Hill because if I don't, I'll always wonder if I should have. And that was really his, and, and he may deny that, but that's what I remember. No, he, he, we actually had this conversation recently because I had totally forgotten that he grew up a Wolfpack fan because that's where dad went. And, uh, so, but he gave a very similar answer. So he, so he does that. And then two years later, um, Hill has been going down to Chapel Hill to see him. We've, you know, we go to football games. We tell, had a lot of fun tailgating uh, and we really kind of learned over time. I didn't really care if, if Chapel Hill was playing, uh, Virginia or Clemson or that didn't mean much to me. So a lot of times we'd go tailgate and then when, the, when everybody went to the game, we'd go home. <laughs> and, mm. But it was, we had, you know, it was a great time. But then, so Hill kind of was like, well, gosh, I know all of Richard's friends. And, and then when Mary Louise came along two years later, she said, I'm going to Chapel Hill. And, and we said, well, maybe you ought to apply somewhere else. And, you know, just as a backup, and she said, I'm going to Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill is a great place. Carolina is Always felt like it was the university in the in the United States. And Clay, you, I'm sure you've probably seen my sweatshirt. But when Mary Louise went, she said, "Daddy, you've got to wear you got to wear some Chapel Hill bling stuff." And I said, "I said, sweetie, I love you, but I just I just can't do that." And so, unknown to them, we got a sweatshirt, a navy blue sweatshirt with Carolina on it. And my neighbor embroidered in small red letters um, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, go, <laughs> go pack. And I still have that sweatshirt. So that's my Chapel Hill bling. I respect more than anything the allegiance that's still there, deep, deep rooted, no matter where the money's gone and where the kids have gone. Um, that, that speaks a lot to someone's character to hold on to that. <laughs> so, so obviously you've got three kids. I've got three little ones. My, mine are seven, four, and one. So I'm going to take this podcast a little selfish for a moment before we get into your journey, because I have a lot to learn from people and parents who have done this before, and especially someone like you who has done it with three kids. So I'm going to ask you a kind of a hard question. What is one thing you wish you would have done differently when you were my age and had kids my age? I think probably enjoy that time because and I think we did. I think we enjoyed. We loved having young children. We loved. Um, we all did stuff together. We, you know, as they got into sports, we all went to everybody's sports and all. But I think appreciate it because it goes by so fast. And when you're in it, as a grandparent now, and we've got seven grandchildren, the oldest one being seven, youngest one being a couple of months old. We we see them with a, through a different lens. Because we're not the ones fighting the fight. We're not driving the fire truck. We're not hauling the hoses around. We're just observing and watching it. And it's so uh, neat. But we don't have the responsibility. I mean, we we do. And we certainly, from time to time, have to have to discipline our grandchildren, which is always, a, you know, I say to them, you're picking a fight with Go-Go. I mean, I, that's my, my grandfather now. I said, you're picking a fight with Go-Go? Why would you do that? But as a parent, <laughs> you really can't. You know, you're you're in the in the thing. So I think it's probably to try. And I think we did enjoy it, but I just it'll go by and you'll it'll be done and you'll have been fighting the fight and raising your children and it'll be over with. Mm -hmm. And so I think if there's anything to try to enjoy it and appreciate it 
And that is not easy when you are in the throes of raising children. Rumor has it that you had a 12-year-old contract with your children. Yes, we did. And this was a, it was a combination of things. I had a customer of mine when I was with the bank, with Wachovia, that um, took his grandchildren when they turned 13. He took them anywhere in the world for a week. Well, that wasn't that. So that was kind of one idea. And then we had some friends that had developed a contract of things they wanted their children to accomplish in their 12th year. And it was things like um, maybe read. Uh, and, and our children were in the choir. And so they were, you know, they, they knew the Bible and all that. But maybe to read specifically uh, certain books of the Bible, to um, learn how to cook, d- develop a cookbook from family. Um, all, they had to go to grandparents and and say, well, uh, Granny, my mother, uh, tell me how to cook spaghetti, because that was what my mother did. Everybody liked her spaghetti. and So they had to develop a cookbook. And they had to uh, run a, ten, I think we did a 10K, and we set a time on it, and I ran with them. And so they, but they had to run a 10K under a certain amount of time. Uh, we did, for Mary Louise, we had that, we looked at, what the state record was for boys and the state record for girls and did that to calculate out, you know, what she had to run. And so they had to do that in that year. Um, they had to write a letter to grandparents. Richard being the oldest had to learn something from the younger ones because it was just a positive for him to learn something from them. <laughs> and so they had to teach, he had to go to them and they had to teach him something they knew how to do. I remember Hills, one of the things he had to do, and this is, it's just so dated, but he was not very good at answering the phone. And in those days, long before cell phones, you know, you had the home phone and he, his manners were awful. And uh, so he had to answer the phone. And so the phone rings in the house. He had to answer the phone and he had to do it in a polite sort of way. So just, you know, a lot of things like that. It wasn't overwhelming in that year to accomplish it. But at the same time, it wasn't just, oh, I'll get it done on Tuesday. There were things they had to do and that were meaningful things. And so once they did that, uh, and I don't really remember us having to drag them through it. They, everybody pretty much got their stuff done. But then we took them on a, a long weekend somewhere, and we took Richard. He and I went to Phoenix, and um, or Scottsdale, and played golf for three or four days. And then Hill wanted to go uh, in the Pebble Beach area. We didn't go to Pebble, but we stayed at Half Moon Bay and played golf there and uh, got paired with these two Asian dudes who couldn't speak any English, and we certainly couldn't speak their language. And you would have thought they were playing with Tiger Woods because Hill was 13 years old and could hit the golf ball pretty well, and they couldn't, and they thought they were playing with Tiger Woods um, <laughs> the, the whole day. And then we took Mary Louise to New York, and the one thing I remember about that is we were shopping in some really, I mean, really expensive area. And I said, you know, we've been just doing this, and we're not going to buy stuff here. And I said, we probably ought to go to a museum or something. And Mary Louise said, Daddy – the stores we've been in are like museums because <laughs> we couldn't we couldn't afford to buy anything there. So uh, I, that was just one of the things. So anyway, that that contract was it was important because it uh, I think it was important in the development of our children. It was important in that Sally and I got to take each child off, which is really hard to do with three to get you know to just get that one on one time or two on one time. So that was a. Those were fun times, and they were—I think—they were meaningful because our parents 
uh, we're all living and they and each child had to had to you know tell a grandparent what why they were important to them and that was pretty neat yeah that's so meaningful and impactful and i I love the my wife and I Whitney and I are trying to be we're not great at it but trying to be intentional about spending one-on-one time with with our kids uh on a regular basis and something that like you said it can be very hard to do but it's so so impactful and meaningful and it's amazing the conversations you can get into with your kids when you get that one-on-one time absolutely uh so you you mentioned earlier discipline as a grandparent how did you handle discipline or any stories that come to mind discipline wise? There was a point when our children were probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 or something or eight, 10, 12, where we just, you know, we were doing all kinds of parenting and controlling. And I just, we finally said, look, what are the four or five things that we want our children to, to do, to respect their elders, to, you know, but I mean, big things. And I said, if Mary Louise's room is a is a rat's nest, then let's close the door. We don't have to go in there. It's it's not whether her room's clean or not really doesn't matter in the big scheme of thing in life. What we want are these five things or four or five. And we wrote them down and said, look, if you're going to wear dirty clothes and, and that that's fine. We're just not going to fight that battle. We want these five things to happen. And we want we want respect and we want honesty and we want integrity and we want you to work hard and and you know those are the things and that happens it doesn't happen at the age of your children but another four or five years you'll get to the point of look i'm trying to keep the teenagers alive till they're 21 and i want them to come out with four or five core things in their life and if they do they'll be okay did you review these four or five things with your kids oh yeah absolutely and just said we're not gonna fight to fight on all this other stuff you know, y'all, if your room's not clean, if you're not washing your clothes, if you're not doing the stuff, that really doesn't matter. And ultimately, you know, kind of people don't want to wear dirty clothes all the time. Eventually, people will wash their clothes and they'll. And so it, but it, I think it was maybe a, a revelation as a parent that, look, what are we really looking for? Um, we want them to be respectful. We want them to be honest. Um, and so let's think about those four or five things and let's do everything with that in mind. And maybe not worry quite so much about um, other things. Uh, I I may dig a little bit here, Ricky, because I'm very intrigued by this concept. So it sounds like, so you and Sally sat down probably multiple times and really carved out what's truly important and probably kept asking, is that really important? That's right. Once you had the list, it was what happened. Well, I think we sat down with the choice. I remember we sat down and said, look, we, you know, we're, we're battling. And I don't remember exactly. I know it would have been with Mary Louise, with, with Hill, he would have had clothes stacked up in his room, a pile so bad. One time, he, I think we had a mouse that got loose and we're in his dirty clothes. Well, you know, if once that happens, then all of a sudden things change and, and maybe somebody says, well, maybe it is important that I deal with my clothes. You know, messy rooms just you know not getting up and getting just all the stuff that happens with children and you just kind of and they were probably all beginning to be teenagers and we just said look this is you know we can't fight this every day we can't we got what are the things we want to have we want our children to be and what are those core principles if their clothes aren't clean or they didn't clear their plate 
Or maybe the clearing the plate is one of the things because it shows respect for your mother and the fact that she fixed dinner. Then that's one of the things, and that means that that plate's going to get cleared. You know, it's and but and that's where they begin to tie more closely. Does it? Do you show respect? And if you're doing something that doesn't show respect, well, one of our cores was you're going to show respect for elders. You're going to, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I think it it comes back and it, and it, but it seemed to me for us, it was a, a little bit of an awakening as parents maybe that look which battles are we going to fight? Because we can fight them all if we have to, but let's get the ones that are going to matter 20 years down the road. And I think we were yeah. successful with that. I really do. But I, and it, it certainly, as I remember, it made life a little easier around the house. I was about to say, because it, yeah. I mean, one, I have seen the output of your three children and 100%. They have all those things that, that all the foundational elements that you, you talked about. But I can well, imagine you. as a parent just saying, "Hey, are you being respectful right now? Like, are you? Are, are you? Are you? Did you handle that with integrity?" And they're probably like, oh, "No, That's, yeah, okay, all right, I get it. I need to. I need to be better." Instead of, I remember as a teenager, you know, getting, you know, frustrated with my parents because they're like, "Oh, you got to clean your room. You got to do this." And I, and in my mind, I'm like, "This is not important." When there are probably some of it that actually was important, but. I do also recall them doing a wonderful job, you know, holding me accountable to work ethic, to, you know, being respectful to elders and, and some of the things that you've talked about here. And I'm extremely grateful for them giving me a, a hard time so that I can build that foundation. So uh, the output for your kids has, is there. So well, thank parents you. out there, uh, heed Ricky's advice. My um, father and I were, close and competitive and he taught me all my tennis and golf skills and everything and but you know when I was a teenager man it was it was a battle and my mother said you need to say yes sir to your dad she said you need to say yes sir and so when it got heated she said I'm gonna say sunflower seeds to you and when I say sunflower seeds the next thing out of your mouth ought to be yes sir <laughs> and I swear it was uh it you know life got better after that <laughs> um and it just you know she probably didn't have to say it much but it was just kind of one of those things of you know it's his house and he's and you you need to be respectful of him and uh, if you'd asked me who would I want to play tennis with it would be my dad because I did not play enough with him because I was starting my career and wished I had played with him every time he'd ever call me to play tennis but uh uh, it, you know, it's fun. I just think you got to keep your eye on the, on what is, what are you really trying to accomplish? Yeah. That, that weaves in really well to you know, what I ask every guest is what's your, why, what's your purpose in your life and sitting there and thinking about that can be difficult. What would you say your, why or your purpose is in life, Ricky? You know, I saw you kind of prompted me on that one. I thought, man, I'm not sure I'm that, um, deep and, and, I have a big purpose in, uh, driving my whole life. I would say that what I though have done is, and, and part of that was my Wachovia experience. We were community people. You know, it's part of what we were was to be part of the community and make the communities we lived in better. And so I did a lot of volunteer. I've done a lot of volunteer work all my life. Um, a lot of it was part of the bank, what you did for the bank. Um, and so, I, you know, I'd say trying to leave the place better than you found it. But that's hard to do sometimes. But I think 
having children that are productive and and them having children that are now having grandchildren and all and and people doing more and helping people along the way it's pretty simple i don't i'm not planning on i don't think i'm going to invent anything big or solve some medical problem but i hope that you know i've i've left the world better than when i found it some days i think i have and some days i'm not so sure it's not necessarily about accomplishing your purpose every minute of every day, but it's <laughs> it's a guiding. It could be a guiding principle, and I think as we get through your journey, we'll see that theme woven through a lot of how you've how you've handled. I mean, not only parenting, but your your career and and what you're doing post career. How would you define a growth mindset? Um, I did not want to travel outside the U.S. I didn't go outside the U.S. until we bought Aladdin Travel in 2004. And then I said, we've got to go outside the U.S. We, I mean, we're in the travel business. I can't say I've never been to Europe, but I didn't want to go. I just, you know, and, and, and once we went, once we did a trip, the five of us did a trip to Paris and London for our first trip, we kind of did it on our own. Then you began to see what the rest of the world looks like. And it fact is all the people and this is what the politicians don't understand. People just want to have a family and they want their children to have a better life than they've had. And they want safety and they want education. That's all they want. And it doesn't matter whether it's Paris or New York City or Winston-Salem. It doesn't matter. That's all people really want. And even though you may not be able to speak their language, you can just you just understand that that's what happens. And so for me, what a growth mindset has probably been, I'm, I just have different... I have a core belief system that's clearly in place. It's always been there. But, man, it has evolved in the last 15 years of traveling and the political landscape and all of just, so what's really right? And being a whole lot more open to a variety of things than I would have been 25 years ago. So I suppose that growth definition is just maybe an age thing of what what, what I thought was set in stone 25 years ago, I found uh, life's changed a good bit. And I don't know whether that's just age, just experience, just travel, but um, so that growth has been a personal growth, honestly. Yeah, so being open to experiences, people, perspectives, countries. Yeah, and I mean, I would say I really wasn't open. <laughs> I'm not sure when I opened up, but and, and some of my friends will say, you ain't so open now either, but, but I, I don't uh, but I am a whole lot more open to learn uh, than I probably was when I was younger and when I, when I knew everything. <laughs> of course. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Well, I know we're going to jump into your journey here around, you know, what you've done throughout your career uh, from working at a big regional bank for a long time and then spinning off and starting your own travel company, Aladdin, to, you know, going into retirement, which is where you are now. It seems like along the way you have, created or cultivated some amazing culture within a company understood culture, but within that, um, some Ricky isms that have come yes. along with that. Could you give us an example of a Ricky ism? Yeah, I, I would, uh, I mean, the culture thing really has been maybe part of my awakening. I'm telling you, be embarrassed at how the, um, the Ricky isms, but, uh, they, they didn't, I didn't label them Ricky isms somewhere. My employees did at some point, but I, I said, they really, I think, are uh, attitude matters. Pick a good one. 
demonstrate in actions and voice a high give a hoot factor and that when it was written down nobody would let me put what I what I wanted to put there so we modified it to give a hoot help others around you and it helps you don't sweep a problem under the rug together we can fix it but separately it gets ugly you know some really basic stuff but it it became uh, I put hustle beat smarts every time and that was probably because I wasn't probably the smartest person in school but uh, you know a hustle and so those things were just part of what began to what really became the the Aladdin culture. We didn't pay a consultant to come in and give us a, a mission statement or something, but we really did. We had a why, which was what we what we believe, and we just talked about it all the time about why was travel important. And that was, you know, it's 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 sometimes it's hard, but we had corporate clients who um, were hospitals, and you were helping their nurses and doctors travel to get better educated about it. Well, so why isn't that important stuff that we're doing? In the corporate space, we were helping people do their job better and, and be paid more and be more satisfied in their jobs. So why isn't that important? And so it, it was a little bit of spinning of what we were doing, but it was also really saying our ability to help people with their free time and have a more fulfilling life was important. We did student travel, so that we're getting them better educated. We're exposing people to the world. There was a real why in our business, but we, we had to kind of figure that out and so that people would feel like what they were doing really mattered. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, how do we treat our clients and, and, and all that? It's not that hard. It's very basic. I had to create a culture um, of what are we going to do? How am I going to go to sleep at night every night feeling like our company has done whatever they could do to be good at what we we're doing and help our clients? And that's really all the culture is. But that was important to me, clearly, because it was my company at Aladdin. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago and said, you know, the Wachovia culture was so strong. And I said, well, there was an article written in 1929, and it's called The Wachovia Spirit. And I've, I've got a copy of it hanging at home, honestly. And I pulled it back up, and it, it just goes through the ideals and attitudes, the efficiencies, uh, integrity, friendliness, and the breadth of you. It's a really well-written article. But it, the whole thing is about if the company is efficient, it's because the people are efficient. If the company is honest, it's because the people are honest. If the if they're productive, it's because the people are productive. And ultimately, and I, I got it because it's the last sentence says, the ideals and attitudes taken together as constituting the Wachovia spirit are the pilot lights by which the institution has guided its course and by which it must always guide its course if it is to be an endless business with a soul. And I thought, how many businesses today are thinking they are a business with a soul. I don't think many. And I and I just say that because that was the culture and this and the that's what I when when I came out of school in, in uh, nineteen seventy nine, that's the company I went to work for. And so it influenced me for twenty five years. And that those relationships I had with people in Wachovia were just incredible. And they still are today. A lot of them are still really, really close friends. But it was that kind of culture that I just didn't even know. You know, I didn't know that there were other corporate cultures. It's like, well, this is the one I grew up in. And then I started to run my own company, and it had a culture because it was a company that had had a, had started somebody else, and, and I bought it from them. And so I had to develop, had to change a culture. And then I began to call on companies 
to get their business. And you could tell in five minutes walking in a, in a company, is this going to be somebody that we're going to, that is going to be nice to deal with that, that has a culture that's supportive or is it one that's not? And it is amazing when you keep your eyes open and ears open, how quickly you can understand the culture of a company and what it's going to be like to work with them. What are some of those variables or behaviors that you notice within that first couple of minutes that good and bad? Most of it is how they interact with each other. If the person at the front desk is speaking to everybody that goes by and saying, Hey, Jim, how you doing? Hope you, did y'all have fun last night, you know, or is nobody, everybody's got their head down. I mean, it's, it's, you just can't believe it. If you're there in a conference room waiting on your appointment and somebody sticks their head in and says, are y'all okay? Can we get you some coffee or anything? And they're not meeting with us. They're, they're just kind of, you know, they're just kind of interested in what's going on. It's just amazing how quickly, uh, kind of the space you meet in. I remember uh, one company in Charlotte, uh, we met, they had kind of a secure foyer kind of thing that was, I mean, it was terrible. They had a bench on the side. That's where our meeting was. It, it was really bizarre. And so it not only says not much about us as the provider, service provider, but it also says something terrible about the employee of that company, that they've got to meet in this awkward space. Well, I'm not sure who thought that was a good idea, but somebody did. And so there's little things you pick up on, but a lot of it is the interaction between people. You'll find out pretty quickly, is this a teamly kind of place or is it the kind of place where everybody's looking to place blame on somebody for something that's gone wrong? And you just would be shocked at how quickly you can detect that kind of stuff. I'm so curious by this because, so Aladdin was obviously a, uh, a travel company. You're providing travel services for, for companies and individuals. So your business grows by getting clients. Yes. Right? So you're, you're trying to get clients, but you walk in and you, you experience some, some red flag, some yellow flag comes up about their culture as the business owner who grows their business by getting more clients yet you're sitting with a client that you're like, mm, yellow flag, red flag. What are you doing? Because that's, it's, it seems like a conflict of interest right there for you. Well, it is. I mean, I, it, I mean, and sometimes I can remember we, we fired one client in my 14 years. And, and that was really a, an honesty issue. They simply were not honest. And so we just said, we can't do this anymore. But, you know, there is bad business. I mean, and, that, and you had to kind of learn that. And maybe some of my openness, because I would have been, uh, I would have been brought up in the customer's always right. And I still really feel like the customer's always right. I think over time, customers have, have um, taken that to the extreme. Um, I saw a guy, I guess the guy that's head of LLB now spoke at a thing. He said, you know, forever we had, um, we would take anything back at L.O. Bean forever. If it didn't, if it wore out, we'd take it back and we'd replace it. Well, the problem is that people started buying stuff at flea markets and then returning it to L.L. Bean. And he said, we just couldn't do it anymore. And I thought, well, you know, that's <laughs> the customer is always right until the customer manipulates the truth, which I think unfortunately today happens more and more. But I would have grown up in that, in that the customer's always right. Uh, but you do, you do have to, every piece of business is not 
a good piece of business. And as an owner, you've got to be able to say, and you've got to say to your employees, look, I realize we're not going to do business with this company anymore, or we, we're going to, we're, we're, when we do our pricing, we're, we're, if, if we get it, it's going to be very expensive for the client because they're going to be really difficult to deal with. And so they're going to have to pay us for that. And so a lot of times you wouldn't get it. And they'd go somewhere cheap and they'd get mad and all that. But you'd have to say to your employees, we're not going to, we're going to do business with people that treat our people well. And if we have people that are disrespectful to our employees, there were, I had lots of conversations about that. And I would, and I'd go to the companies and say, look, I'm just telling you the, this is what's happening over here. And, and, uh, but that was, again, I think it was part of my role as the owner. You got to go to bed every night and feel like we're taking care of our employees and our clients. And if, if, it, if it doesn't mix, it's going to be a problem. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but it's going to be a problem. This culture conversation, I want to continue, but I'm going to table it for a moment because I want to go to a specific part of your journey where you were with the bank. You said you, you joined Wachovia right after, right after school. Yep. I think you were there for about 25 years. Yes. And then you said, you know what? I'm going to go buy this travel company and, <laughs> and, and, you know, completely switch what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so that moment in time is kind of where I want to concentrate on, because I think that there's, there's a lot of learnings. There's a lot of, a lot of things that are happening in that moment in your, in your personal life, in your, in your career. So if you could transport your mind to at the best of your ability back to 2003, 2004, when this happened, yeah. What was prompting you to go from, I just built this entire career and my personal identity around being in this banking community to, I'm going to go do travel? Well, Clay, I think that's really interesting in the way you asked the question of, it. I would say the Wachovia, it was my identity. I was from Winston-Salem. I grew up in Winston-Salem. I went to work for the bank right out of school, worked for the bank when I was in school as a teller in the summer times. I was a Wachovia. I was Wachovia. I was the city exec in Winston. You know that the and you got all the senior executives, but I was the guy out front in Winston Salem, and so it was my identity. So then we had the merger of equals uh, between First Union and Wachovia, and the cultures. First Union, I want to say, maybe had seventy-five or eighty thousand employees, and I think at that time we had Wachovia would have had twenty-five or thirty thousand employees. And we did what was called a merger of equals. It was a time that banks were trying to figure out how to grow. And that was, and consultants came in and helped parlay this deal. Ultimately, the failure of it, which it did fail a few years later, I believe was totally cultural. The first union had a culture of growth at all costs, and they managed people that way. It was an eat or be eaten culture. Month by month, day by day, what have you done? It, it's what led, honestly, to a lot of the sales problems that ultimately, you know, Wells Fargo had, just this hyper sales kind of stuff. Wachovia had a culture of soundness, profitability, and growth in that order, and all of us knew it. We were criticized for not making quick decisions, but we, we did not make many bad decisions. But we, you know, so but you, so you brought these two companies together, who just absolutely had cultures that were not compatible. And so, but you got 80,000 employees over here and you got 25,000 over here. And so over time, that other culture overtakes the culture because uh, people get jobs and, you know, it just, it just happened. And so 
I think I was with the bank about two years in a, in a leadership role, helping consolidate these banks and everything. And I've just said to my wife, Sally, I just said, I'm not going to make it in this world. This culture is not who I am. It's not how I believe in managing people. It's not, uh, it's just not me. It's just not me. That's all there is to it. And so um, I had thought I'd be a career banker, thought I'd be with Wachovia forever. The, at the time, the owner of Aladdin Travel, who's a, a good friend of mine, she and I had served as consecutive presidents of the downtown, as they say, the old man's Rotary Club in Winston-Salem. Uh, and in the year uh, she was president, um, I did, I got all the programs together. And so you develop a pretty good relationship with that person that you're doing. Uh, she had also been a customer of the banks, or she, we had, the bank had been a customer of Aladdin Travel. And so I knew her that way. I actually went out to tell her after the merger that we were no longer going to be a customer of hers. So I had this relationship. And so we invited her over to dinner one night in July and said, look, we, we always thought we were going to be with the bank. It's probably not going to be our home going forward. And you know a lot of people. I can't go look for a job. I'm a high-profile person in Winston-Salem. I can't look for a job. But I'd be interested if you, you know, if somebody needed a CFO. And now knowing what Richard, my son Richard does and knows, I wasn't qualified to do a, be a CFO either. Um, but anyway, or, you know, maybe want somebody else to sell a business or something. We, we'd like to kind of look at that thinking I knew what I was talking about. And she said, you know, you're 10 years younger than I am. Uh, why don't you buy my business? And I said, I got no interest in that. Don't like, you know, the travel business is consolidating. It's, you know, there's no money in that. I, I just, that's not something I want to do. She said, well, you know, all that's true, but maybe you ought to look at it. And so a friend of mine had said some years earlier, he said, you know, Ricky, in a small business, all you got to do is find a little niche and you can make money doing that. And you can, you know, it can be a nice existence in a small business. And he had said that way before I ever considered changing. But I kind of, I'm, I'm an accumulation of relationships and conversations over my life. And I heard that from him. And so that started a, a process of about four or five months of reading about it. I, I've got names of attorneys that were in the travel business. I got names of a good friend of mine now in Kansas City that uh, had done a similar kind of thing, who is, to this day is a great friend. And I talked to him. And, in, and then in October, I got an article about 10 or 15 things you should do if you're buying a business. And it just had, you know, you got to agree on a price. You got to do this. You, you got to do that. And so I wrote an email uh, to my future partner and said, look, here, here's a framework of what I think we could do. It was a mirror the first five years, I got the benefits because I was the minority shareholder. The last five years, she got the benefits because she was the minority because it would flip over. And so it was hard to argue with any of it uh, because it, we both were kind of treated equally. So anyway, we we got the deal done. And, and um, I left the bank and was out a week. And I worked three days at Aladdin that week that I was off. And we went into the travel business. And had no clue what I didn't know. I mean, I I did not know. I'd never run a business. And so it was a learning curve. But uh, that banking history was invaluable because I did understand the numbers and I, and I understood how to sell and I understood how to provide a service. And, uh, and so we got started and that would have been 04. And then you had the recession of seven and eight, I guess, or eight and nine. And 
Uh, we made money every year. Uh, we didn't make much in one year, but but we made money every year. Got going, and it just ended up being a fabulous 14 years. And but but it, I think people, it, it took that merger and that what I would consider awful experience to push me out. And I think many people will stay in an awful experience and never have the thing that pushes them out. They just will survive in a crappy work environment. And the thing that I would charge people to do is, look, man, it can be better, but it may not be better where you are because you just, the culture may not fit you. From what I've seen from people I've worked with and people in my life, the, the easy thing to do is to stay the same. The easy thing yep. to do is to try to charge through, assume it's going to get better. And then I would say the next easiest thing is go do something in, that's parallel to what you're doing today. So I work at this company in this industry. I'm just going to go to a different company in this industry and and hope that the grass is greener. Yeah. But you did the hard thing and you left the industry completely and not only went to a new industry, you were running the business. You weren't just another cog in the wheel or an executive, you know, with other team members around you that are maybe have more responsibility than you. So to take that leap and go that far away from what you were doing with kids, with college coming up, with all that happening. I mean, that, that's a big leap, Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm glad to have it behind me. <laughs> Uh, but it was, but it was, I was pushed. I'd say it was, and, and, you know, we, we, um, had a lot of trusted people along the way that helped us. And, uh, but it just, it was, we were, it was, we were very fortunate and it just worked out. Couldn't have worked out better. So getting back to our culture conversation. So you're coming in, you, you, you're working with someone who's, who's run the company for a long time. How how did you start you know building these Rickyisms in? How did you start building a culture that you thought would thrive um, based on your experience, especially at Wachovia? You know, a, a lot of it really was. Um, I kind of came in and I was learning the business and I was observing things. And I, I just there were there were one one day that we had a thunderstorm that came through maybe sixty days into the into my tenure there and the big bolt of lightning hit and all of a sudden the building went dark. And so I'm sitting there and I've been working for Wachovia, you know, for 25 years and it, nothing ever went dark. You know, there was stuff there was backed up. Everything was backed up. It just, that didn't happen. And I, and so I'd say maybe 30 seconds or so, all of a sudden everything starts blinking and the power comes back on. And, and I said, so where's our, um, where's our generator? <laughs> well, we didn't have a generator. And uh, so Where's our, you know, tell me about the, uh, where, you know, how, how about the computers? Who do, what, what do we, you know, and so you, you began to get into, man, we got to, do, we got to look different. We're, our clients are not expecting us to say, oh, by the way, you know, we just blew out our computers and we'll be up in a week or two. And so it kind of, some of that was what started it. And then you begin to, and I would observe people and it and had been a little bit of a culture of a, a lot of ideas, but nobody finished stuff. And so, well, that, you know, all of a sudden, uh, and that would frustrate me to death. And so a lot of it was just, wait a minute. I, I realized I came out of a big corporate world, but there were some disciplines that I've been taught and that I know that we've got to get to. Attitude matters. Hustle beats, um, smarts. 
uh, bad news doesn't get better with time. And my children, man, they hate to hear that. But they, but it's you know, it's one that don't sweep it under the rug. Help others, and they'll, it helps you. Demonstrate that you care, and own it. Don't push problems or clients off. Ask for uh, for help to fix the situation. Enhance a personal relationship. You know, when things go wrong and you get over that, it's it builds the relationship. And honestly, those six or seven things, that was who we were and it's who we preached, and we were able to preach it. And it said a lot about how we're going to interact with each other as a, as employees. And, and um, you know, I just I developed it over kind of a need. And, and you know, we probably, I probably read some, you know, everybody's reading the book of the year, you know, or whatever it is. And so some of those come out of that, the, you know, why do you, the why things that I had to help people, I wanted them to understand. I wanted them to be emotionally bought into it. And so you had to know why we do it. Why is what we do important? And so that cultural thing, it just, it was wanted to be a company that I was proud of. And um, that's kind of how it all developed. But I would go back again to that, the Wachovia spirit and the company with a soul. I think that's what probably was the foundation. And I didn't realize it, honestly, but that was kind of what I wanted and something I could be real proud of. You know, when you go through a recession and you cut everybody back to four days a week and they thank you because their husbands have been laid off totally. And then at the end of the year, you're able to pay out a little bit of bonus money. And somebody says, you know, we just made a pledge to the church and we didn't know how we were going to satisfy it. And you've just satisfied it. It's incredible. You know, it's the culture of a little company. And it was, we had a really special time, but we did expect things. And people knew we expected a lot out of them. Uh, but, but they also. How did you hold people accountable? You know, um, I'm telling you, in a, in a little company, if somebody, you don't have to do much. Uh, holding them accountable because if everybody's pulling in the same direction, man, they would they would be on each other if they weren't doing it. At the same time, we had measures, you know, and they and they didn't like the measures in the beginning. They didn't like stack rankings, and they you know they didn't like the fact that we did customer service scores and we asked their customers on a regular basis how they were doing, and they had all kinds of reasons that that didn't make sense and that, but. Over time, you reward people for it. You know, you don't just beat them up, but you're saying, "Look, you you, you scored 98 percent on your customer service scores this year. That's a that's a 30 percent bonus for you." Well, before too long, they're kind of they're kind of happy with that. But you, and so you're getting there. But you you got to have the measures in place, and you got to be willing to say this is what we expect of you. But I want you to expect a lot of me too, as the owner. Um, expect more from me, but you have to. And we really didn't, um, we didn't lose many people that we didn't want to lose. Um, they liked the environment. We tried to pay well and we were able to, because we, we, you know, we made some money and we were able to pass some of that along. And, and, um, it wasn't, I mean, it, there were hard days, but if you don't hold people accountable, then the person who's working hard sitting at desk A sees desk B screwing around and if management doesn't deal with desk B before too long, desk A will say, well, you know, I'm not really sure why I work as hard as I do because, because that person over there doesn't and they're, they're kind of making the same amount of money I'm making and they're kind of being recognized the same way. So you have to hold people accountable. But I also think we, 
we gave them the the stuff they needed. We we had three computer screens. I have three as I'm talking with you. I've got three computer screens here. And I took them kicking and screaming into that. I said, the efficiencies we can get from having three computer screens so that you can do your job. And they just, everyone, I'm just about, you know, had a cow. After about a month, they said, we can't believe how good this is. Um, and so we gave them the, the tools to do their jobs better and faster. And, uh, but but the, you got to hold them accountable. But I think there is a way to do that without, you're not just beating up on people all the time. There's just, you don't need to do that. Yeah, I'm curious. You got me thinking about incentivizing people because you made a comment earlier around the issues Wells Fargo got into at, at some point because they were too worried about growth yep. um, and incentivizing at, at any cost. So how do you go about building this culture of having the right clients, growing the business, but not incentivizing in a way that is growth at all costs? You know, I think you just have to be smart enough for us Volume was important. We we had to have a, a, an agent, a corporate agent, had to do a certain amount of volume. If they if they couldn't, and it's always amazing how literally one corporate agent can do in a month three times the volume of another one. And you go, how can that be? You know, how can they be that fast, that good, that? And so you work on that to try to figure out what is it that those people at the top are doing, and what are the people at the bottom not doing. But so you had to have volume and volume's the thing that's the risk in that. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll produce $25,000 a month in, in revenue, but my service will be stinky. And so ultimately what we did was we said, look, you're going to be incented for that volume, but you're going to be even more incented for the service. It's going to be a multiple on top of the volume. And so if you don't have the volume quite up at the top, but your service is really good then you can make as much money as the top producer. And the top producer, if you'd slow down a little bit, <laughs> you can still be make your money because your service will go up. And so I do think it's, I, I just got to believe where the banks and the big sales companies is they just, they get their incentive programs out of whack so that it's, it's a piece count. And I got to get the pieces however I can. And, and I'll, I've got if I've got to be in a weekly meeting that tells how many how many phone calls I made or too long. I, you know, I made 10, but I told you I made 40. And before too long, I'm, uh, you know, opened up the account for Mrs. Smith because she's so old. She'll never know. I, I just know that's what happens because I saw it begin to permeate the, the business I was in. And that was part of what I didn't want to be part of. I like the the triggering kind of along revenue, but also uh, client satisfaction and you could lower revenue a little bit, but increase client satisfaction and still be incentivized, still do a good job. But then you, you had floors, obviously, especially yep. on the revenue side. I'm trying to manage 43 people and Wells Fargo is probably managing 350,000. I don't even know. And you're just trusting down through the system that everybody's pulling in the same direction. And again, culturally, I don't know how you'd, how you develop a culture in a company that big that isn't driven by simply data. And, and in fact, eh, probably a lot of really struggling to figure that out. Over the 14 years that you owned and operated Aladdin, I'm sure you had plenty of success. I know you had plenty of success. 
but I'm sure there was some failure along the way too. What's an example of a, of a failure you had and what'd you learn? Well, there were usually the failures where we just somehow or another, we didn't stay close enough to the client that all of a sudden we didn't know the client was shifting. We, we didn't know the, the, we, we just weren't close to them. And, and our mistake was we just hadn't, we took for granted that we had a relationship that was good. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody, something changes and we didn't realize it. We just missed the boat. So then you, you take that 14 year window and then sell what, two years, 18 months before COVID happens. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, high level, how enjoyable of a process was it to sell your own company? You know, I wouldn't put it in enjoyable though. Uh, we, at the time it was, we, our timing was perfect. I mean, because of COVID, yes, but even just the industry, there was a lot of money available to buy agencies. There was consolidation that was accelerating again. We had, at that point, two of the three children were in the business. No one had a real interest in carrying it on. I was at an age at that point, 60, I guess, 62, that it. I knew that it was going to need more investment and more energy. And I was kind of like, well, you know, I'm not sure that's what I'm in for. And we knew the players um, who would buy, potentially buy us. And we had really good consultant, an attorney in Houston and a consultant in Scottsdale who I trusted totally. And we, when uh, Richard and I began this process, we talked to them and they said, well, here are the four players in the market. And I knew who they were. And they said, you're going to end up with direct travel. And, and I said, well, that's fine, but we, we've got these other people we need to you know, I just need to do our due diligence on it. And we, one of them we talked to and it was a New York based company who we had been close to and knew a lot of the people, but they had changed some of their leadership. And we got off the phone with them and, and I, Richard and I looked at each other and said, they just, and usually if we were on the phone, Sally, uh, Richard and I were on the phone talking to these people. And I said, they think we're, we're just stupid bumpkins from North Carolina. And uh, I said, we probably don't need to call back. And, and at any price, I would. I mean, I'm just not sure I would have done business with them. We just wouldn't have sold the company to them. And so we ended up back in conversations with direct travel. You're always trying to look out for your employees as best you can. But the fact is, once they write you a check for their company, it's their company. And, and it is no longer your company. And at some point, Richard, at the summer after we saw, he said, why are you coming to work? And, and I said, well, I'm just trying to make sure everybody's, you know, being taken care of. And he said, well, you know, nobody works for you anymore. <laughs> and, and my direct reports, I had been doing our weekly meetings as we always did. And they said, you know, it'd be more helpful if you weren't here. And so I really didn't go back after that. And, and it was, and so eh, it isn't much fun. Um, but you do the best you can to get your employees who have been loyal to you. I learned from a good friend of mine who sold a company and, and I, somebody had told me, he said, you know, that guy, when he sold his company, he really looked out for his employees. And so Sally and I made a decision that we were going to take some of what we got and disperse that to our key employees who had helped us. And so we did that because we thought that was the right thing to do and still do. But it's, it's I wouldn't say it's a, a fun thing to sell a company. It is a gigantic relief, gigantic relief, but it was, it was certainly a, a 
a pretty interesting experience. And I think we sold it to the right company. Uh, I'm sorry for them because COVID, man, in the industry, basically the industry shrunk by 90% in about a month and was like that for two years. And it's slowly coming back. And my buddies that are still in the business are, are you know, fighting their way back. But that, that was just a killer that no one could have anticipated. Timing with some of this stuff is uh, I mean, it's extremely fortunate or unfortunate, depending on where, where you sit. But what a, what a cool run to be able to grow that business, involve yourself, and broaden your perspective, broaden your, your travel. It sounds like I know you have a love for travel now, um, no surprise, being in the industry, and, and to involve your, your children in the business as well and family in the business. I mean, sounds like a wonderful experience to now you can look back on and, and reap some of the benefits from it. Yep. Um, the state motto of North Carolina is, I think it's Esse Quam Vidira, uh, which I assume is Latin, and it is to be rather than to seem. And I'm proud to be from North Carolina, and that that's something I've, I've you know kind of hung on to that over the years. And it it really I don't I got, I'm not exactly sure when I realized all that, but it was somewhere in that move to Georgia with the bank that I I thought, man. There is something about where you grow up that matters. It makes me think about a quote. I think it's a John Wooden quote that a reputation is what people think you are and your character is who you truly are. And yeah. it kind of makes me think about, you know, be, you know, actually be, don't be just seen. Yeah. Um, you know, character versus reputation. What's one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you've ever made? Could be an investment of money, time, energy. Well, I hate to be. Uh, so, um, thing oriented, but I'm sitting at our house in the mountains <laughs> that we, years ago, we, we, we liked the mountains and all that. And, uh, this house came on the market. We had admired the house and we came in it one day and, and said, man, you know, uh, this would be really cool for us to do. And for a lot of reasons, it gives a place for the children to want to come. The grandchildren love it. So it's a thing. It's, uh, it's not deep and, and all that, but it's been something that has been, we, we took the leap. We had a conference call with our children, uh, which is, we've never done. I think that's the only one we've ever done. Uh, and said, look, we want to tell y'all we're going to buy this house. We've not gone nuts. Um, we know what we're doing, but it, it is, it was a leap, you know, to, to have a second home. And, but it's, it's really been a, something that we, we were really glad we did it, but it's a, it's a thing and we shouldn't be worshiping things and all that. We don't worship it. We sure do enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get to fill it with memories, which I yeah. know y'all do and we'll have pl plans to continue to do it. And I would think, you know, the other thing to, to, to overlook the, the move from Wachovia, uh, which was my home for 25 years into the, the investment of time and energy and, and resources in the beginning um, to Aladdin. I mean, if there's one thing that, changed our lives probably more than anything else that was really it the trajectory just was different what advice would you give to a smart driven college student who's about to enter the real world i think you got to work hard i think you got to try to learn as much as you can and you got to try to put something back it's not all about taking what advice should they ignore I'd just be a good listener. I, you know, again, 
I'm an accumulation of a godzillion number of conversations I've had in my life with people who gave me advice that at the time I'm sure they thought it was really good advice. You know, you just absorb it. And sometime in the future, you'll go back and say, man, that was the worst thing that I could have ever heard. Or you'll say, man, there was a little snippet there. And so, I, you know, I, I think I'd listen to everybody and, and, and let it get in the, let it percolate and it'll come back. And it'll either come back as, whew, that was, glad I didn't do that or glad I didn't follow that or, you know, that wasn't a very good idea, but this is. And so I, I just think you try to take, Try to take it all in and then use good judgment. Don't. When uh, I worked for a man in, in Atlanta, and he, when I went down there, he said, look, I want you to run this thing. You take it and run with it. Just don't bet the farm on any one deal. <laughs> and, and that was kind of his guidance, um, uh, the opposite of a micromanager. But uh, uh, but that was good advice. You know, it was great advice. Just that reminds me of what my dad used to always tell me. He said, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen twice as much as you talk. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You serve on, on a number of boards and have throughout, I think, your career, and I, and I know you do still to this day. I'm curious, just in general, and it doesn't have to be about you, but I think there's a lot of people that are intrigued by being on a board or haven't, haven't experienced that before. What makes a good board member? The one thing I would recommend to people is, one, you need to be engaged. It needs to be something that you're really interested in. Because I would tell you that over the years, the bank said, hey, we need somebody to do this. And so, you know, okay, I'll do that. But over time, I've gotten to where I want to do this. I've got an interest in this. Right now, I'm on Arbor Acres board, uh, which is, they, they ask a lot of you as a board member to be engaged. Arbor Acres is a very successful retirement continuing care unit, uh, really nice retirement community. I'm on the board of the volunteer fire department in Allegheny County. And honestly, they need me probably. I mean, there are good board members on there as well, but they need, they need good, smart business people on that board. Um, they, they have the volunteer firemen who do a fabulous job of saving structures and saving people and all that, but they need business um, folks to help them uh, with it. And so I, I think that you're engaged and you really care. And so don't do a board that's, you don't really care about it. You know, you're not, the mission's not there. Collidium is the uh, children's museum in Winston-Salem that's uh, in the process of building a new building and they consolidated with Cyworks and, and, and really in my mind, went to a new model of what stuff needs to be. Instead of having two museums, we've consolidated into one and going to have a much better one than we had two. And we've hurt some feelings along the way because people liked the two museums. And But I think ultimately, um, and I was heavily involved in kind of that that turn of events, I suppose, but you, you got to be committed to it. I think that's the big thing is that it's something you're really interested in. All right, we're going to end on this. Richard asked me to ask you about the doink at Aaron Hills. <laughs> at Aaron Hills. I think they got more out of the doink than I did, but um, we were playing, and, and uh, they said it was it really doinked right at the bottom of the pin and should have gone in. I don't know. We got up there, and it was 10, 12 feet away, but uh, uh, I did have a – I had a good stretch of, of about – I had two hole-in-ones in a year. 
one of them was Richard was playing with me, and one Sally and I were in California. But uh, no, they got a big kick out of it. But they I, they, they got a big kick because that day at Aaron Hills, I think I was the low round for the day of the four of us, and I played. I didn't play well the rest of the time we were gone, but that day, but they they got a big kick out of that one. Well, very good. Well, Ricky, it has been an absolute pleasure. I took more time than I asked for for this conversation, but I just couldn't stop understanding your journey. And uh, I know that there's going to be some inspiration and people that are going to find little tidbits and you'll be part of their accumulation of, of things and, and of people uh, and, and experiences that, that shape who they are. And uh, so I just want to thank you for your vulnerability, for your the, the thought and, and time that you put into thinking about our conversation today. And so today we've built with Ricky Shore. Ricky, thank you for being on. Thanks, Clay. Appreciate the time. Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.